Good morning. Good to, good to be with you. Uh, I mean, it's good as we have the opportunity each week to turn to God's Word and trusting that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and speak to the people of God. And so as we come to the Word this morning, let's um, pause and um, ask for God's help and presence. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for this Word that comes to us, often from a different context, far removed from us um, in time and geographically, uh, but you have uh, contained in your word uh, eternal truths that speak to your people um, in all times and in all places. So would you uh, use these moments that we have set aside for the consideration of your word and would it not be uh, simply an exercise and someone speaking and others listening, but would you attend to the preaching of your word and would you accomplish the purposes that you have set for all of eternity uh, for this day in our lives? Uh, would, through encountering the word, would we encounter you afresh and would you convict and uh, bring change and transformation in our lives as we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so we are going through uh, the book of Genesis as a church, and uh, we are in the last uh, few weeks uh, before taking a break over the summer uh, with the hope of uh, returning and jumping back in uh, later this year, this fall. Uh, but I just want to remind you of, of where we've been over the last few weeks as we have been introduced to this uh, crazy family. Uh, and if you've been uh, with us, uh, you know who these people are, uh, but I just want to remind you of them. So we've got this guy uh, named Abraham that will appear, I believe, in a moment. There he is. Uh, we have Abraham, and Abraham is the guy that uh, God has made uh, promises to that he would unconditionally and unilaterally have land, descendants, and blessing. Uh, the problem with the descendants part, however, is that he is married to his half-sister, uh, Sarah. And Sarah is barren. She is unable to have children. And God sends uh, Abraham and Sarah and their nephew, Lot. Uh, he sends them into this land that he promises them. And this is where things begin to go sideways because a famine arises and concern that God's not going to be able to provide for them. The three of them head down to Egypt. And this is where things begin to really go sideways because Abraham is afraid that his wife is just far too attractive. Uh, by the way, she was about 65. And, and so in order to protect himself, he says, tell everyone that you're my sister, forget about the whole married part. And so she tells everyone uh, that she's his sister. And then as a result, uh, the Pharaoh uh, marries her and gives Abraham all kinds of possessions and animals and slaves. Uh, he then finds out that when God sends a plague onto Egypt, that she has uh, that she was married to this guy. And so the, the Pharaoh gives Sarah back to Abraham and they leave the land with all of these possessions and animals and slaves. And one of these slaves was an, a woman named Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave. Fast forward about 10 years and God has not fulfilled this descendant's promise yet. 
Sarah has, has, has not had kids. She's, she's, she's at this stage. She's about 75 years old now. Abraham is 85 years old. They still have not had a child. And so Sarah concocts this plan that Abraham should sleep with Hagar and have a child with her. So he does, and they have a, a child named Ishmael, and Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. Now, 13 years later after that, feeling pretty good about himself that he's helped God out, Abraham is visited by God, and God says, I am remembering my original promise to you and Sarah, and that, that Sarah and Sarah is going to have a child as I promised in about a year's time. And you will name that child Isaac. And Abraham laughed at God, and Sarah laughed at God because Abraham is nearly a hundred years old and Sarah 90. In this same time frame, Lot, uh, this their, their nephew moved off to a city called Sodom. Uh, he, he, he had lived outside of the city in some tents for a while, but then he moved, at some time he moved into the city. But the city was incredibly wicked, and God wiped out the city. But because he remembered Abraham and a promise he made to him, Abraham, he rescued and took care of Lot. And so Lot and, 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 and his daughters have escaped from the city when it, is, when it is destroyed. So that's where we are. Uh, that's where we, we pick up the story. Uh, so Genesis uh, chapter 19 and verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So he has moved from a tent to a city to a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. This is a messed up family. So they made their father, as it says, drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was incredibly, incredibly drunk. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Okay, so here's, here's what we, we've got, okay? We have, we have two daughters. We don't know their names, okay? So daughter number one and daughter number two. So you've got Lot and his two daughters rescued out of Sodom, and now they both have children with their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Now, Moab is a, is a, is a great name for this kid because Moab means, technically, from father. Now, Lot might not have known when she came into the cave or when she left the cave, but nine months later, uh, when she names the child, he figures it out. The firstborn, uh, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. So when you read the Bible about the Moabites, you now know where they, 
where, where they came from. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Uh, Ben-Ami, that means the child of my kinsman. Again, just slightly more subtle. Uh, he is the father of the Amorites to this day. So we've said from the very beginning of our, of our series in Genesis that it is a book about beginnings. It is a book of origins. Um, and, and what we have uh, in this story is an introduction to the origin of most of the key players that we're going to see throughout the Old Testament as we go through it. And, and that is why I wanted to take time uh, to, to show you that. We have been introduced to where the Arab nations come from, where Israel comes from, where the Moabites come from, where the Ammonites come from. These are all the people that have flowed from this one crazy, crazy family. Chapter 20, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, which was the, the desert, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. So it seems like he's living uh, a kind of semi-nomadic uh, life at this point. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So here we go again. He's doing the exact same thing as before. I mean, God has just said, said, said to him, spoken to him, and said, listen, you're going to have a child with Sarah within one year. And Abraham laughed, and Sarah laughed, but then they go into the land, and he's like, man, you are still too attractive. For those of you who are keeping record, uh, she's 90. And he is still afraid that, that people are going to kill him and take her because she's so attractive at 90. And so he, he goes back to his old ways. He falls into his old patterns. He, he doesn't seem to care what God has just said to him. You see, in that earlier story, the events in, in, in Egypt in Genesis 12, Abram had lied in order to protect himself. His faith had faltered. His trust in God waned. And in this story, he faces the same issues. The same issues are in doubt. And, and how will Abraham react this time? Will he trust in the promises of God? Will he realize that God will protect him? Unfortunately, Abraham again falters in his faith. He, he attempts to rely on his own cunning to get him out of a difficult situation. And you know, it, it's easy for us to look at, at this and think, how in the world could Abraham fall into this again after, he's, after what he's learned from God? And listen, we know part of the answer, don't we? We know it from our own hearts. That there are, that there are certain old sins, old patterns to which each of us are uniquely susceptible. Sin which, which clings so closely. Sin that may not appeal to others, but it maintains a, a, a deadly allure for us and promotes a tragic recidivism in our lives. And, and, and Abraham's clinging sin, when pressured, was to trust himself rather than God. 
I mean, generally he trusted God. Abraham believed the, the divine promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. But sometimes when pushed, when pressured, he decided to give God a little help. Lord, I trust you, but I just want to make sure things are going to work out all right. One commentator writes this. He says, each of us has deeply worn channels of sin, besetting sins that refuse to let us go. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. But as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us so that we should see our sin and that we should turn to Him, that we should trust Him and realize He will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution, which is complete trust. And faith in God. And the question with which Abraham struggled, just like so many of us, was this. Can God keep his promises without any help from me? And so the story of Abraham continues to, 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 to demonstrate for us the struggles of a human being attempting to live a life characterized by faith. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. God says to Abimelech, you are a dead man. And Abimelech's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He vigorously protests his innocence. First of all, I didn't touch her. I didn't approach her yet. Second of all, even if I did, I did this, I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. In my heart, my will, my intentions, my motives, in my hands. I, I actually haven't touched her at all. In the integrity of my heart and with the innocence of my hands, I have not touched this woman. And even if I did, it was because Abraham and Sarah said that they were just siblings. Now again, notice this theme that we've, we've seen before. Abraham and Sarah, the chosen people of God, end up being the evildoers in the story. And God's response is, is, is remarkable. Verse 6, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you, let you touch her. Now pay careful attention to that verse and don't go, go past it too quickly. God said to him, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. See, this is one of those places where theologians divide and they die for their uh, theological moorings, their outposts on this issue of what, what is going on when God intervenes with the world. You know, you, you see there will be people who jump to this side and say, well, well everything, it's all up to God. And then people read other verses and, and say, well, wait, it says I'm supposed to be making right decisions. Well, God chooses who he is going to save. Yes, but God calls people to repent. 
Well, I, I believe in election. Well, I, I believe in free will. And then our minds blow because we read verses like this one and it seems to say both. Look at it again. And then God said to him, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. That's absolutely, that is absolutely true. And I, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You see, these are two things that are both true. And it's easy to feel a, a discomfort because we're trying to press them both into our brains, but, but we do need to hold them both together, that these two work together at the same time, where he can make a decision that is fully his decision, and yet God is the one behind it all. God remains completely sovereign over it all even through apparent the apparent expression of human free agency. Now let's watch how this unfolds. Verse, verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God says, I'm giving you a choice. Do this, give her back to Abraham, and you'll live. Or don't and die. It's really your choice. I'm laying it out for you. I'm not tricking you. It's a choice. But God knows what he is going to do because God has orchestrated it all. You see, because God has made a promise to Abraham that he will have land descendants and blessing no matter what he does, no matter what anyone else does. And, and they have not had any descendants yet. So he knows which way this is going. And so do we as we read. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Don't miss this. Abimelech pagan king rebuking the abysmal, deplorable behavior of God's prophet. You have done things to me that ought not to be done. You know, I have friends who are not Christians who live more moral lives than some of my Christian friends do. I've got non-Christian friends who have better marriages, who are more committed to their marriage, who are more consistent in their parenting, that are more ethical in their business practices than some Christians that I know. See, there's this mistake that we so easily make. And this mistake is to think that Christianity is all about what we do, that it's all about us being good people. And the problem is, in order to, find, to define what we do as good or moral or right, is we compare ourselves to other people. So we say, I'm better than, than, than this person. Uh, this person is better than that person. That person is better than this person. And we create this little little. Uh, comparison stack, and the distance between us on the eternal scale is about this far. And yet the standard we must compare ourselves to is God. 
And it doesn't matter if you're me or my neighbor or my non-Christian friend or Abimelech or Abraham. We are all so far removed from God's perfect standard. And this guy Abraham, with all of his flaws, is still the chosen man of God. He's still the prophet. And Abimelech, of all people, he actually gets this. Because when, when, when he gets done rebuking Abraham for his deplorable behavior, he, he says, what do you see that you did this thing? In, in other words, what prophecy did God give you? Even though you've, you've been kind of shady, I believe that you've, that you've seen something, that, that, that there must have been a prophetic message that God gave you that caused you to treat me in the way that you treated me. So what was it? And Abraham has a really lame answer. I did, I, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in, at all in this place. I thought you guys were terrible heathen, he's basically saying, and you will kill me because of my wife. You're going to kill me and take her. That, and, and that's Abraham's answer. It's the same excuse that he's always given. And if you read along through the next couple of verses, you see what happens as Abimelech then says, okay, go. Take all of the things that I gave you. Take all of the servants that I gave you. And then, and, and then just pick your spot of the land. Whatever piece of, of land you want. You just take it. It's yours. Pick the best part if you want. And then he goes to Sarah and he says, Listen, Sarah, I'm going to give you a thousand pieces of silver. Uh, I'm going to give it to your brother to show that I have been honorable to you. And he sends them out and he lets them go. And Abraham prays for them, for him. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, don't miss two important things. First, we see how Abimelech was going to be a dead man. When we hear someone say, you're a dead man, uh, we feel like it's, you know, like seventh grade. It's like, yeah, I'll meet you outside. You know, we're going to settle this. Or we think we're in a, you know, a mobster movie, you know, where, where, where every moment you're looking over your shoulder for, for, for death. Look at how death was going to come on Abimelech. He wasn't going to have any kids. His kids weren't going to have any kids. His servants weren't going to have any kids. Nobody in his city were going to have any kids. Their wombs were all going to be shut. And this was going to be a slow, long-term, decades-long death. Because sometimes the consequences of sin are not immediate. But they're just as impactful. Second thing. God has now used the exact same situation twice. With Abraham pimping out his wife to, to, to make him wealthy, and this time God used it to give him land as well. Now all he needed now was a descendant. He needed a son with Sarah, a son that God had already promised him and had already given him the name. Chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 25 years. I mean, how many of us would bristle and lapse in our faith at God's promises to us seemingly not being kept after 25 years? Would we not think that God doesn't care for us, that he's forgotten us, that, that maybe he doesn't really act in this world, but God 
as we see once again, is a God who keeps his promises. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Don't forget, Isaac's name means he laughs. Abraham laughed. Sarah laughed. The child is now named laughter. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah is, is, is joyful. Sarah's laughter has, has turned from a laughter of scorn at God, a, 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 a ridiculous laughter of how could God do the impossible, to a joyful laughter of a, a woman 90 years old nursing her child. But this joy takes a dark turn because sin begins to catch up. Because sin sometimes catches up after a long time after we sin. And we see that in the next verses. And the child grew and was weaned, which means he was probably two or three years old at this point. They nursed that long. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, what did she just say a couple of years earlier that she was, she was excited about? That when people saw Isaac, they would laugh over, over her and, and, and that this was a child of joy. And now we have this party. People are eating and drinking and dancing and laughing. And yet Sarah's eyes lock into to Ishmael, who is now, he's probably 17, 18 years old now. He's a man now. And, and, and he is laughing with everyone else. And her blood begins to boil. And so she calls and says to her husband, and says to him, cast out the slave woman with her son. She doesn't use her name. That would be too, too respectful. She, she, she's just property to, to Sarah again. This woman, her son, not your son, Abraham. Not Ishmael, who, who she is known for, for the past 18 years of his life. This woman, her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, who does have a name, who, who is a person. And the thing was this, very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Now you remember, maybe remember that the first time this happened, there, when there was this tension between Sarah and Hagar, Abraham said, just do what you want with her. Just, she's a slave. Just treat her as a slave. Kick her out. But now he's got his boy. And he loves his boy. And so he's torn and he doesn't know what to do. And so he calls out to God to, to ask God, what should I do? But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. Which is what God's consistent message has been to him all along. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Because he is your offspring. Remember, God changed Abraham's name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. And he, and he said, this is because you will be a father of a multitude of nations. 
And God says, I'm going to keep that promise too. That, that the covenant is for Isaac. The, the covenant that I'm, I'm giving is, is for Isaac. It's for Isaac and his offspring. But I will keep my promise to Ishmael as well. And he will be the, the father of nations as well. And so Abraham gets up and he, the next morning and he gets a loaf of bread and a, a bottle of water and he gives it to Hagar and, and Ishmael and he sends them out. And they head out into the wilderness again. And this time they run out of food. They run out of water and they get to the point where they are starving in the desert. And Hagar cannot bear to see her son, who's a man now, die. And so she tells him to take shade under this, under this bush. And she goes as far away as she can so she won't see him die. And the two of them begin to cry out to God. And the angel of the Lord comes down to Hagar and says, I have heard the cries of Ishmael. I have heard. Remember, his name means God hears. It's part of the promise that God keeps making to Ishmael. I have heard. And so he provides them a, a, a well with water and they drink and they live. And then he grows up uh, to become a, a hunter and an archer. And they, and they move and he gets an Egyptian wife. And he becomes the father of the modern Arab nations today. Because God is a God who keeps his promises. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And then we see the power begin to shift. There's a, a dispute that happens now about a, a well and all kinds of things happen to the point that Abraham begins to be the primary player in that entire area as God, keeping his promise to Abraham, begins to shift power to him so that he'll have land, his descendants, and his blessing. Now, what can we learn from this crazy family, specifically this part of this crazy family story? Well, to me, one thing that just jumps out loud and clear, and that is that God is always at work. He's always doing something, and he works with people and he works with nations and he works with kings and he works with babies and sometimes we get to see what God is doing and sometimes we don't see and sometimes he works through people obeying him and a lot of times he works through people disobeying him but God is always at work and time after time after time after time he calls people and he says listen I'm going to give you a choice you can go this way and it's going to go well for you, or you can go this way, and it's going to go poorly for you. And this is the message of Scripture again and again from Adam and Eve. Go this way or go this way, and he gives a choice, and it's a real choice. And yet at the same time, in a way that, that, that we can't fully comprehend, God is always, always, always in control. He is writing the story. He has numbered our days. He has planned everything out in advance. And, and yes, we have a, a very real choice. And, 
And I don't know how to fully bend my mind around it all. But what else can we learn from this story is about Abraham and, and, and Sarah? What else can we learn uh, from these people who were chosen by God and yet often live a life contrary to what God had called them to? Well, we learn that there, that there are earthly consequences for our actions. Abraham, chosen by God, saved, continues to sin again and again and again. And he is responsible for his actions. And 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years after his sin, it still impacts him. It still has earthly consequences for his relationship with his wife, his relationship with his son, his wife Sarah. Her mind is still torn apart with jealousy. Her heart is still bitter against Hagar for like 18 years. And then Abraham's heart breaks as he has to send his son away. There are, there are earthly consequences for our actions. And not just for us. Our actions are not victimless. I, I mean, just look at this story. We can see in this story that Hagar and, and Ishmael and Abimelech and all the people in Abimelech's nation, they were all impacted by Abraham and Sarah's sin as well. We, we are all way more connected than we dare believe. And those sins that we think are just so private, well, they ripple out and they impact people around us. And finally, what we can learn from Abraham and Sarah is that the world is watching. I mean, Abimelech's words, they strike deep in many of us. When the pagan king says to the man of God, you have done to me things that ought not to be done, we begin to realize sometimes what poor ambassadors of God we've often become as the church. I was thinking about that this past week with the, the shocking headline uh, news coming out concerning the years of abuse and, and cover-up in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention. This isn't to, to throw unfair criticism in the direction of our Baptist brothers and sisters at all, for sadly, you know, we're not immune to such things either. But the news this week serves as a, a grave and, and public example of the world rightly confronting the church saying, you have done things that, you, that ought not to have been done. But my hope and my prayer is that when people watch our lives, that they will see Jesus. Now I know that even when we continue in sin and he saves us in spite of that, they're still going to see Jesus. But I hope that they see Jesus and his character in us. Because this is what Paul says in, in, in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. 
See, we have something that Abraham and Sarah just looked forward to. We have Jesus. And we know that Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again so that we not only would be set free from the eternal consequences of sin, but so that we could have the power of sin, that it might be broken in our lives, so that we can live the godly life that he has called us to. So we can live a life that doesn't have to ribble out all these earthly consequences to us and other people in front of a watching world. But even so, because God's focus with us is on creating a heart characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and love, one of the ways in which he does that is by showing us and sometimes others our sin. And often that will be embarrassing for us, even humiliating. But in this way, he gives us an opportunity to repent publicly and to speak plainly about the gospel that is the only hope for sinners like us. Our public sins give us ample opportunity to testify to that amazing fact. And this is often... The only explanation why God's plan so often seems at odds with our script for our lives. Not just at our best, but also at our worst. Because he wants to make progress in his plan to do something great and transforming in our hearts. And, and brothers and sisters, one way or the other, we can be sure that God has promised that he will bring to completion the work that he began in us. If you are a true follower of Jesus, he will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.